This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Let's get out into the wilderness, wherever that is. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we'll explore nature in the age of human-caused climate disruption. Burning fossil fuels has changed the basic biochemistry of the Earth on a scale unimaginable a few decades ago. Heat-trapping pollution is changing the weather, the seasons, the oceans, even where birds and animals live. It's changing everything. I've traveled to Siberia and the Arctic Circle, and our guests today have trekked to other regions remote around the world. How is climate disruption changing our relationship with nature and nature itself? What what role do zoos and parks play in a world where air travel makes climate change worse? Over the next hour, we will talk about the natural world and listen to some sounds of nature before and after humans stomped on it. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have three guests. Bernie Krauss is a soundscape artist and author of the new book, Voices of the Wild, Animal Songs, Human Din, and the Call to Save Natural Soundscapes. Jason Mark is editor of Earth Island Journal and author of the new book, Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. And Tanya Peterson is the director of the San Francisco Zoo. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Jason, Mark, does wilderness still exist in the Anthropocene, the age of human-disrupted climate? It, it does. I'm happy to report that it does. Um, for the book, for Satellites in the High Country, I, I traveled. You know, every good nonfiction book starts with a question. And, and mine is, is there anything that's still really, truly wild in this human age with 7 billion people on the planet, with global climate change, with you know, Amazon drones and, and, and Google <laughs> GPS and Google Earth? And what I found is that there is quite a bit of wildness and wilderness out there uh, in America and around, the, and around the world, as long as you understand that wildness doesn't mean, and wilderness doesn't mean pristine. We live in a post-pristine age. There's really no place that's been untouched, and the human insignia is everywhere. But if you understand wilderness to mean places that are undominated by human will and undominated by civilization, um, places that are still self-willed, then yeah, I'm happy to report that there's a lot of wilderness still out there, and I think it can continue to serve as a touchstone for our relationship with the rest of nature. And we're putting aside more marine reserves and, uh, and wild places as we go along. Bernie Krauss, you spend a lot of time out in nature, sitting, listening, you know, while you know, Jane Goodall's been kind of observing uh, primates. You've spent, tell us how you got into it and, and what a, yeah, a soundscape artist is. Well, my background is in music. And uh, I, at one point, I just quit in the late 70s, went back to school, got my Ph.D. in bioacoustics because I wanted to work outside. I wanted to be close to the natural world. And um, uh, I just found that this was one of the most rewarding things I could have possibly done as far as a life's choice was concerned. And so here I am. I find myself recording animals for a living. And so you go out there in nature, you got your headphones, and you sit there for a very long time with a big microphone and just kind of 
sit there. Capture the soundscapes because the soundscapes are, uh, they give us a sense of place and they have a lot of information in them. That, this is the voice of the natural world. And uh, mostly we've been looking at the natural world and trying to observe it from what we see. But the natural world has a voice. And uh, I wanted to give that voice to you know, as many people as possible through these recordings and make, make it possible for them to hear what, uh, what beauty is out there and what resonance is out there and how much information is out there because it really informs us about how we're doing in relationship to the natural world. It's telling us, it's giving us all that information. And we'll hear some of that. Uh, most people do, a lot of people do think of looking at nature, not so much about hearing nature. Tanya Peterson, when you're designing the San Francisco Zoo, do you think mostly about looking? Do you think about the ears? Uh, we think about sound as well. Uh, we try to make the zoo accessible to all. Uh, recently, we've um, uh, reached out to the blind community as well uh, with a lot of braille and touch uh, so that those with disabilities can also hear and um, touch animals and wildlife as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But my joy being there on a daily, uh, daily basis is the, are the animals in the morning. And you can spend the night at the zoo. And if you're brave, uh, my family did, and you hear the animals all night. You know, most animals are nocturnal. Uh, my husband didn't get a good night's sleep, but uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. It's a fun thing to do with kids. I never actually did it, but I know it's a fun thing to do with kids. How, Tanya Peterson, how is climate change changing the role of zoos? Uh, I think it's stressing the importance. Uh, we view ourselves as sanctuaries, the Noah's Arks of species, if you will. Uh, you know, all of the animals now at the zoo are either endangered, threatened, or rescued, you know, abandoned uh, uh, situations. And uh, our hope is one day we can return some of these species to the wild. But we're very careful now about the species we provide shelter to, the hope being that, like a rhinoceros or others, that we can return the species back to a safe, if not pristine, wild. Burning Krauss, animals in ca- captivity, is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's a real thing, and uh, it's very much a part of our culture. Uh, it goes back thousands of years in terms of uh, how we've managed the uh, natural world. And I think that it's one of those issues that we have to discuss in the culture and see what it brings to us. I think it's sometimes really important, as Tanya was talking about, it's, uh, it's an ark. It's a, it's a place where a lot of animals can be rehabilitated that have been... Uh, treated not well. Uh, whether or not they can be reintroduced into the wild is another issue altogether because, you have, first of all, you have to have some place to put them. The place has to be secure and safe. If you in- reintroduce a rhino in Zimbabwe or, or uh, Mozambique right now, uh, its chances of surviving longer than a week or two are not great. Uh, so you have to find ways of, of uh, dealing with that issue as well. Let's, I want to go to some of the soundscapes, and, and uh, we have a couple of uh, clips from Bernie Krause's work. Uh, so the first one I want to queue up, uh, Bernie, tell us what we're going to hear about Lincoln Meadow. Lincoln we'll, Meadow, I, I, I've been recording at Lincoln Meadow for many years, um, and in 1988, a logging company uh, came through and tried to convince the local population that there'd be no environmental impact from selective logging, a new thing they were trying to do. And so um, I asked them if I could record. They allowed me to record. And this first recording is before selective logging. Okay, let's hear Lincoln Meadow. 
you can hear how robust it is uh, when it's a really vital habitat. Here it is a year later after logging. Here comes a uh, woodpecker. But that was it. The difference is palpable, and uh, this, these are the kinds of things we need to know about to make good decisions. And that's selective logging. You have clips where there's clear cutting, and it's even more of a dramatic, we yep. won't play those, but even more of a dramatic change. Yeah. So that's species that had to move somewhere else because their habitat was destroyed. Yes, and they never came back to that habitat again, even though to our eye, it looks perfect. To the eye and to the camera, you can frame a shot, and it looks as if there isn't a tree or a stick missing from that habitat. But of course, our ears tell us a very different story. That's interesting. I think so much of us are look at Sierra Club uh, calendars, look at nature. Oh, it looks okay, but we're not yeah. paying attention. We have another one uh, that shows the impacts of climate change. So, Bernie Krause, tell us about Sugarloaf State Park. Sugarloaf State Park is in the Mayacamas Mountains, which borders Napa Valley in the east and Sonoma Valley in the west. And I've been recording there for 20 years. And I have four... 15-second recordings, first recorded in 2004, again in 2009, 2015, and 2016. And it shows how climate changed because when I first started recording there, spring occurred at a certain time of year, and now it's two weeks earlier. You can see how climate change is affecting, and the drought is affecting uh, the bird populations. You'll hear a nice robust piece in 2004. In 2015, nothing. This is 2004. Now we're coming up on 2009. Spring's occurring two weeks earlier. Bird populations are beginning to thin out. Now here comes 2014. Almost nothing, no stream. And 2015, absolutely nothing. Silent spring. We had no bird song where we live in Sonoma Valley this year. It's the first time in 77 years I've experienced a spring without bird song. Mm-hmm. Jason, Mark, uh, some people who don't know what they're missing uh, depends on people's baseline. If someone was born um, and when those sounds didn't exist, they don't know what they're missing, right? Is it so? Is it possible that humanity's just going to adjust to a shifting baseline and not know the richness that Bernie Krause just showed us we're uh, we're losing? Yeah, it's it's a real challenge for the for the conservation community to think about kind of what are we trying to save when we're preserving nature because. Where essentially, as a you know, as a culture, as a society, we're on a, a, a kind of a hamster wheel of collective amnesia, because each generation is starting from again a different baseline. The baseline is always shifting. So what a baby boomer might remember as a degraded landscape would then, for a Gen Xer, be the norm. And even that then middle baseline, a millennial will come along and might think it's like paradise, might think it's rich and full and vibrant. And so it makes the work of conservation really hard. It's why I think this sort of natural history recording, whether it's 
you know, film or, or photographs or video or audio is so important so people can sort of see as things have changed. But it, it, I think it especially complicates things, again, in what some are calling the human age or the Anthropocene. If the human insignia is everywhere, what exactly is the nature that we're trying to preserve? And it does, it's not just academic navel-gazing. I mean, it really does make it hard for land managers on the ground to know what are they trying to preserve. Is it a snapshot of a place in time, or is it the biological processes of recurrence, regeneration, and, and you know, restoration that a, that, a, that, a, that a vibrant ecosystem would just engage in? We've seen some of that here recently along the California coast where uh, warm waters has brought food in, which has brought uh, dolphins swimming in Monterey Bay. My kids think it's great. Oh, cool. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen that in 50 years. Mm, yeah. But it's like, oh, dolphins, the whales are swimming closer. And isn't that a good thing? We can see whales from the Golden Gate uh, Bridge. Bernie Krause, not all bad. Not all bad. Oh, uh, I, re- I remember when Humphrey swam up to Sacramento and, <laughs> and uh, we had to get him out. So uh, it depends. There are things that are happening where the, the natural world is always testing for optimum, uh, optimum performance. And so whales are going to come in to test that. Birds are going are, are to take up different territory and, and different places uh, to live to survive because that's what the natural world wants to do. Living organisms want to survive. So those kinds of changes are going to take place. One of the things we might think about doing is, first of all, learning what these messages are through the soundscape because it's a really important way to learn that. And second, um, uh, what we want to do and how we want to frame this world for ourselves and our, our survivors, you know, our, our families and, and children and so on. It's really important to think about that. Tanya Peterson, do zoos have a role in either documenting this change? or I mean, you ever think about the shifting landscape, the migration, the, the, the extinctions? Or are you just looking at a, at, a, at a place in time for what is now? Uh, well, first of all, I'll just say if anybody's been to San Francisco Zoo, you know it's near the ocean and it has historically been cold. Well, with climate change, we've had more warmer days than not. So you, maybe it's good for attendance at the zoo. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we are actually trying to attract migratory species, be the zoo without cages. Um, we're developing actually our coastal region um, to provide a safe haven for the migratory birds and other species coming along the coast. Um, and we definitely are thinking that we should be a, a safe haven for other animals along the way as well. But mostly our mission is to educate, um, to let the Generation Xers know the world might be something different in the near future if we don't take action. And the beach is going to be waterfront here before too long. Is is that uh, on the horizon? Because there's actually the city has plans to move the highway, right, closer to you because the ocean is advancing. Yes, we will be one of the only zoos in the world actually uh, on the ocean. And we... uh, (laughs) By choice. (laughs) You know, you you make lemons, uh, lemonade out of lemons, as they say. So with that, uh, you know, the zoo is divided into conservation hot zones. Uh, We have Africa. Asia, wherever the current conservation issue is, and obviously now it's water. And so with this uh, new situation, we will be building the coast in as part of uh, the zoo, actually, and uh, create a outpost 
uh, for children to look safely at the at the ocean. Uh, for those of you in San Francisco, we have kids coming from Hunters Point, Bayview. They're excited to be at the zoo. They're doubly excited to see the ocean. They had no idea San Francisco bordered the ocean. So they run across that great highway, uh, you know, not safely. We try to escort them across. (laughs) But now what we're doing is building a platform so that they can experience the coast safely. Interesting. Uh, Jason, Mark, you write about Pete Singer in your book, and Animal Rights. So tell us about that Pete Singer story. Well, I don't get into Pete Singer too much. I guess Pete Singer comes in in a chapter about the intrinsic rights of nature, which really, right. I think, would, would begin, um, you know, most powerfully with Aldo Leopold in the Sand County Almanac and saying that there is a community of life beyond, beyond our own, beyond human civilization. You know, Thoreau says wilderness is a civilization that's other than ours. And it's just trying to make the point that I think a lot of the American environmental movement, the global environmental movement, as we're facing these cascading eco-crises from climate change to the acidification of the oceans, a lot of the work has become, out of necessity, uh, self-preservation. And I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of the work we do and that you talk about so wonderfully here at Climate One all the time, you know, redesigning our cities, redesigning our technologies, redesigning our energy system, why are we doing it? So yes, we're, we're doing it for ourselves, but I would hope that it's not just to save our, our bacon from a crisis we ourselves manufactured, that at the end of the day, the work, whether it's at the San Francisco Zoo or from other conservation organizations, it's about trying to, trying to save a, a world worth saving, right? The, the beauty of the natural world. And so I think, you know, I've got a whole chapter kind of coming back and remembering that a lot of the wilderness movement um, is about safeguarding the intrinsic rights of other critters that are out there, that it's, we don't just want to save nature for the instrumental value it provides us for its ecosystem services, that these things have got a right in and of themselves. Um, and so that's where, you know, Peter Sing- Pete Singer comes in in, a, in sort of a line. And that's also where Pope Francis is t- talking about St. Francis and communing with nature and uh, St. Francis kind of giving sermons to flowers and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, so Bernie Krause, Pope Francis has asked us to, you know, this new eco- integrated ecology to think more about the inherent value of nature. Do you think he's going to be good for your business and for your, your ethic? <laughs> Well, we're nonprofit, not by choice, so (laughs) I'm not worried about our business end of things. But uh, I think that he makes a really good point about uh, preserving the natural world and uh, becoming the stewards that we need to become in order to uh, uh, still have places to visit and places to go. I know for myself, um, I suffer from a terrible case of ADHD and have uh, since I was a kid, and the only thing, and I'm talking about medication and everything else, the only thing that has helped is connecting with the natural world and spending time out there, which is my main reason for doing that, uh, and learning to uh, to enjoy it in a peaceful, not aggressive or assertive way. You write uh, in your book about nature can help uh, PTSD, uh, forest bathing, you know, sort of like being out in nature under the canopy of trees is actually, uh, ADHD aside, good for human health. Yeah. There are many groups that still live connected with, uh, to the natural world who, uh, when they feel stressed by the cash economies of the West or the, or the Far East, uh, just disappear into the forest for, for rainforest for months at a time to heal. And uh, that distance that they're able to 
to uh, obtain by doing that, by just getting away from it all, is, uh, is a remarkable analgesic for them. You write about uh, Mark Tramp, I think it is, at the Institute for Music and Brain Science at, at UCLA. There's, I mean, this is not just like, oh, when I, I feel good when I'm in nature. This is starting to be scientifically proven. Yeah, I mean, there are, it's, it's still a little bit anecdotal because the whole field of soundscape ecology is just a few years old. But uh, we're beginning to think about doing studies that uh, engage people who are in heavy medication or s- cancer survivors, stuff like that, um, where uh, they are listening now to natural soundscapes instead of music because music is culturally biased. And so often when music is introduced, as uh, Oliver Sacks has said in his book, Musicophilia, sometimes also what's introduced is things like grand mal seizure or petite mal seizure, uh, just because of music. So even though it appear, people want to hear certain kinds of things, it has a stress effect on them that uh, we haven't been looking at. And you also write about auto traffic can actually impair people's IQs at certain ages. I mean... Uh, that's, quick, a world, that's a World Health Organization study. That... Urban noise can impact human brain development. Yeah. And uh, so those families moving to Marin may have a point, okay? Yeah. Um, I mean, Bernie's work is so... I, I mentioned Bernie's work in my book. It's so important what you've been doing, Bernie, for years to, to, you know, to, to get, this base, get this information about the natural world. And, and it's really clear. I mean, I, you know, I write in, in Satellites in the High Country about how when you go out to the deep wilderness the one thing that's going to remind you of civilization is going to be jet traffic. 20,000 flights a day, either small craft or jet airplanes, taking off in this country. Um, That is like the ultimate mark of civilization. We've taken ownership of even the sky, and it's so hard to get away from anthropogenic sound. You know, I went to the heart of the Olympic rainforest in part because it's supposed to be one of the few places in the lower 48, in the continental United States, where you can sit for 15 minutes and not hear a human-created sound. And so I think actually this human din that's around us is, is contributing to people's sort of sense of, what some people feel is sort of a sense of claustrophobia, right? That there is no way, there's no place to get to. And again, Bernie's work has been so important to, to make us aware of that. I want to go to our, our lightning round and uh, ask each of you uh, some brief, uh, fun, uh, yes or no question. Uh, starting with Bernie Krauss, uh, some environmentalists can be righteous and annoying. Yes or no? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) None in this room. None that you, yeah, it sounds like you know some. Um, Jason Mark, some environmentalists are against everything. Yes. Um, (laughs) Stop the madness. Tanya Peterson, zoos are to nature as Pringles are to food. Oh, I'm going to say no to that. <laughs> uh, Greg, Greg, where did clever. you get these? Oh, I you have a drink upstairs and make them up. Yeah, um, um, I do like Pringles, though. <laughs> I was reading these earlier, and several of the crew said, oh, Pringles, yes. Um, uh, Jason Mark, zoos and aquariums educate children and give them a chance to see and understand animals they'd never otherwise see. Yes. Um, Tanya Peterson, it is offensive for circuses and marine entertainment parks to force animals into mimicking human behavior, dolphins that kiss people and elephants that ride bicycles. Yes. Uh, Tanya Peterson, at the grocery store, do you select free-range eggs and meat? Uh, Yes. I rarely eat meat, but uh, yes, when I do, when I have company. (laughs) 
Uh, Bernie Krause, are you vegetarian? No. Jason Mark? No. I'm not either. Well, 80% of the time. Um, Jason Mark, some people in your generation consider climate impacts when deciding how many children to have. Yeah. Would you? I, I am. Yeah, it's, a, it's an open conversation in my family still, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm committed to one and done. Uh, Tanya Peterson, selling licenses to kill big game is a good way to generate money for their preservation. <laughs> no, I strongly disagree with that. Um, Tanya, animals living free are more content than la- animals living in captivity. Captive animals pay a price for helping educate people. Uh, you know, I would say it depends. Uh, you know, the animals in the wild suffer from drought, uh, starvation, poaching. Uh, I mean, we have animals at the zoo living much longer than animals in the wild. So it certainly depends on the situation. So animals in the zoo get room service. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> Bernie Kraus, you have played Sounds of Nature to get your wife in a romantic mood. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're asking me? <laughs> you're the sound guy. Your wife's here. So, you know. And we should ask her. <laughs> and, can you, and can you sell those CDs for other in, in the audience? You know? Cat is sitting right there. People on the, on the radio can't see you blushing. Um, so we've been talking about the sanctity of nature. I want to ask you about GMOs. Uh, Jason, Mark, GMOs, some people think GMOs will be necessary to feed a world with 9 billion people. We've been talking about the inner value of nature. GMOs are kind of tinkering with nature. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, my concerns around GMO have less to do with biological ecology than political ecology. And the question is, do we want a small number of corporations to be essentially controlling the global food supply through their dominance of the seed markets? I mean, in gen- you know, humans have been tinkers for a long time. One, one could say that a hybrid, you know, any sorts of hybrids would be unnatural in a way because they've been crossbred by humans. So, you know, my bigger concern is one, again, of political ecology, but certainly figuring out how to feed a global population is the biggest test of how much space we're going to be able to allow for wildness in the world and space for other critters. We need to not just share land, we need to spare land. Um, And so I think we need uh, to increasingly intensify agriculture. I just want to make clear that's different from industrializing agriculture. There's ways to intensify agriculture that are based in principles of agroecology. the trick there is it involves more people on the land. And what we've seen for the past couple of millennium is a move towards urbanization. And at the same time, we also do need to make our cities denser. So there's a couple of you know, competing tensions there. But in general, I, I, would, I would consider myself a, a GM skeptic for reasons of, again, political economy. But uh, the reason a lot of people against GMOs... Uh, are that they think they're bad for human health, which really hasn't been proven, uh, for, or because Monsanto's evil, et cetera, uh, rather than the industrial monoculture and kind of the controlling power that you just described. Is that, is that fair to say that a lot of people opposed to GMOs for reasons because they're worried about frankenfood or other things? Sure, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. Most people are concerned about GMOs because they have a gut-level reaction to the manipulation. And this just goes to show, I think, that... The, the, you know, the project of modernity remains contested terrain. You know, uh, Michael Grunwald, the political, wrote this piece kind of taking down uh, uh, Pope Francis's encyclical and saying it was weird. And I got this weird little, it happens now in the 21st century, this weird little Twitter back and forth with Grunwald saying, well, I didn't find it weird. I think actually 
the Pope was expressing the feeling many people have of unease with technological change. And that is not limited to the political left or the political right. It actually crosses a lot of boundaries uh, or uh, what, you know, the political boundaries we have in this country. So the more interesting question, I think, is parsing and looking at what are the good things of modernity? I'm in favor of tetanus vaccinations and antibiotics. And what are the bad things about modernity? Uh, cultural alienation, alienation from nature, and of course, the way that we're consuming the planet. So you got to kind of parse these things, I think, and, and think about um, you know, what are the good and the bad and, and not throwing it all out at once. I want to talk about art. Uh, Bernie Krauss, uh, Become an Ocean uh, was a piece that you uh, write about uh, John Luther Adams. It, it's sort of the, the melting tundra and, and uh, loss of sea ice. And, and uh, tell us about Be- Become an Ocean. Well, it's uh, John Luther Adams as a composer from Alaska. Uh, it, he's often confused with the lower 48 John Adams, but uh, he's written this piece about, uh, which was performed by the Seattle Symphony Orchestra a couple of years ago. Got a wonderful review in, in most of the papers. And uh, it really speaks to an issue that's very important. And he's trying to bring the ideas of ecology and, uh, and uh, sustainability into an art uh, framework. I know that we've done something very similar with uh, the Great Animal Orchestra. We actually composed a piece that was commissioned by the BBC Symphony Orchestra um, last year, and uh, which included, for the first time, live animals' sounds with a 70-piece orchestra. Oh. And it was um, way cool. Uh, I thought I was thinking of Peter and the Wolf when you were talking about that. And uh, um, Jason, Mark, you write a lot about wolves in your book. They're endangered. There's a tension between uh, livestock and hunting with the wolves. The reintroduction of the wolf in the American West has been a big story, controversial story. Uh, where is it now? Where is it now? Well, it continues. It's, you know, you almost see like a scorecard to follow it. Is the wolf on or off the endangered species list? And it almost goes state by state according to what federal courts have ruled. But yeah, I tell the story of... You know, the wolf has long been the, the kind of totem of wildness for a lot of people. Um, uh, Adolf Muria, a famous 20th century wildlife biologist, called the wolf's howl the voice of the wilderness. Um, poet Gary Snyder says, you know, putting predators back on the land is ecology on the level where it counts. And yet you also have like a great outdoorsman like Teddy Roosevelt saying the wolf is the beast of waste and desolation. So, you know, <laughs> we've always kind of projected our feelings about wildness and wilderness onto this animal. And, and I... I follow the story of this subspecies of wolves, the Mexican gray wolves down in the Gila wilderness. There's only 106 of them. There's about a couple hundred, I think it's about 300 now, uh, in captive breeding programs across the country, but 100 out on the landscape. And they are probably, those 106 animals are probably the most closely monitored and managed wildlife on the planet, I think it's fair to say. Um, Just the intensity with which federal and state wildlife agents have to track them every week, um, partially to protect them, because poaching and and illegal killing of them, because that that population is still on the endangered species list, is the number one cause of mortality. And so it's this wonderful story with all these conflicting parts. The wolves are certainly wild, they're out there on the landscape. They're eating, ca- you know, eating cattle. They're eating elk. They're behaving as wolves, but they're not exactly free. They're they're living in the matrix as much as we are. I mean, they are <laughs> they are so carefully managed. And so it was it, it just a um, 
an emblem, I guess. It was emblematic of of the tensions around wildness today um, and how the, the, it's hard to kind of think about what wildness means when you think about wolves that are out there and they're all wearing GPS collars. They all have pit tags, personal, you know, the kind of tags that some people put in their um, cats or dogs with a social security-like number and a vaccination history. So, you know, are, are these animals really wild? Um, and it's, it's a fascinating story. And you quote one person who says that they are four-legged al-Qaeda yeah, <laughs> uh, the ranchers really don't like the predators, even though they're healthy for ecosystems. They're bad for ranchers' business. Right? There's no question about that. I mean, I think the reason why our our relationship with wolves have always been once you strip away all the symbolism, what you get is the fact of brutal competition. Wolves are antagonistic to our interests, or there's a there's an innate conflict of interest. At least if we are not going to be vegetarians, if you are eating meat there's going to be a conflict between our interests and the wolves' interests. Um, and so that's what makes it tough. And, and the, the ranchers at some level have a legitimate concern, but it then starts to become, um, it becomes clouded with, I think, what, what I found to be paranoia. Tanya Peterson, any wolves in captivity? Uh, it's interesting you brought up the wolves because we've been asked to bring in two wolves, um, actually the Mexican mm. uh, wolf that was just described, and we happily will. We also have two wolverines. And again, I think some of it is just a misconception. Uh, uh, my understanding and our observations are the wolves really go after the weaker of the herd, uh, which in some ways may be beneficial. But it's uh, yeah. nature. Yeah. That's yeah. nature. Uh, uh, and so, you know, again, all due respect to those in the industry, I, I think they have overhyped the situation. Again, though, this is where I think a, a zoo can play a role. The wolf needs help. Uh, we have the space. We're converting all the uh, old polar bear exhibits into wolf terrain. And we can play a part in conservation. Uh, we do have two wolverines. They are just as mighty and ferocious, smaller but uh, and they seem to attract a lot of University of Michigan fans. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're talking about the sounds of nature at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Tanya Peterson from the San Francisco Zoo, soundscape artist Bernie Krause, and author Jason Mark. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be right back after this break. And now here's a Climate One minute. There's no question that the natural world is worth saving for its own sake, if not for ours. But is there an economic trade-off? Tony Juniper is a sustainability professor at the University of Cambridge and author of the book, What Has Nature Ever Done for Us? How Money Really Does Grow on Trees. He says the cost-saving decisions that are made by corporations and governments are based on what he calls the greatest misconception in history. The idea is that investing in nature, protecting the environment, looking after ecology, it's seen as a cost that is hostile to the process of improving progress, economic growth, and the betterment of human welfare. My point, based upon what I regard to be a vast amount of compelling evidence, shows the opposite to be the case, that nature is in fact the underpinning of the global economy, and in fact the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, not the other way round. Because in the end, we rely on soils, fresh water, clean air, the replenishment of oxygen, pollinating insects, the protection of coasts by mangroves and coral reefs, the soaking up of carbon dioxide by forests and soils. All of these things, if you start to add together the economic contribution they're making, one estimate holds it's about double global GDP. And yet the bit 
of the economy that we're measuring, the bit where we actually look at the, the economic growth in traditional terms, is based upon the plundering of this other part of the economy, which is worth twice as much. And so what I'm trying to do in What Has Nature Ever Done For Us is to overturn this misconception and to generate a new narrative in economics, which is about seeing nature as an essential ally in the process of economic growth, not something that's hostile to it. That's Tony Juniper, author and sustainability expert, speaking with Climate One in 2013. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Bernie Krause, you talk about snowmobiles in national parks. And for someone who I love Wyoming, Jackson Hole, and I thought about, wow, wouldn't it be neat to go there in the winter and take a snowmobile? And I think, oh, what about the sound? And so tell us about your story about snowmobiles in parks. Well, I was asked by the National Park Service to go and record uh, the sound level of snowmobiles in the parks. And it was a time when they were using two cycle engines. And uh, they would have literally thousands of snowmobiles allowed into the park every day. It was beginning to uh, cause pollution. Uh, it was a huge amount of noise. And so I went up there in the, in the early 2000s and recorded uh, not only the snowmobiles going by, but also the sound level, sound pressure level, uh, which exceeded something like 90 dB, 95 dB. And at one point, uh, the, uh, the congressional group that was asked to come up and see these things for themselves because they were going to vote on whether snowmobiles should be allowed in the parks. Um, uh, at one point, I just set up a room like this and with speakers in the room, and I measured the sound pressure level of the snowmobiles going by and reintroduced it into the room at the center of the room. And when these guys, and they were all guys, of course, came in to uh, listen to the sound. Um, and I, I, I said, I have something I'm going to play for you, two and a half minutes each, one of snowmobiles going by and the other of the natural soundscape as it is when it's quiet. And so uh, I played <laughs> the sounds for them. And, uh, and when the snowmobiles came by and it came up to around 95 dB, they were blocking their ears and screaming and yelling and, and saying, turn down the sound. Turn, and I said, no, I won't do that. This is what you're voting on. And uh, it turns out that it was a split vote. It was 210 to 210, and uh, Dick Cheney had the deciding vote. So we know which way that one went. Um, <laughs> Bernie Krause, a lot of fires in the West these days. Have you ever done soundscapes of fire? I have. I have recorded fires before. Um, down mostly in uh, the southeast in uh, the Everglades and around Florida uh, because I was doing an exhibit. I was doing a soundscape uh, exhibit for um, uh, Corkscrew Swamp, the uh, park down there at Corkscrew Swamp. And Jason Mark, this is a natural phenomenon. Yellowstone burned. People got all upset that Yellowstone was not the way, you know, I wanted to remember it. But now Yellowstone's coming back. I've been yeah. there, right? I mean, aren't these far, maybe the human caused element is the drought and there's some human aspects to it. But fire's natural. What's the big deal? The big deal is that we've sprinkled our homes throughout the forests. <laughs> and now when we have a forest fire or a wildfire, it puts in jeopardy people's homes, lives, and property. But yes, I mean, forest is a natural part of, uh, you know, certainly ecosystems throughout California and the, and the Mountain West. 
and we need them. And if anything, you know, a century worth of fire suppression is just built up these intolerable fuel loads. And, and most of the time, when a fire comes through, even a high-intensity fire, what it leaves behind is a mosaic. And that's, that's what natural systems want, right? You want a mosaic of different sort of stages of the forest that's going to provide more habitat to a broader range of critters. I, I'd like to think, you know, the Forest Service now, seeing how much of its budget is cannibalized by, by forest firefighting, um, in some states, you know, Washington State, I did talk to a, a fire ecologist, um, a guy named Chad Hansen, just last week, and he was saying that, you know, Washington State, with its mega fires the last two seasons, is maybe being a little smarter, smarter than Cal Fire is, retreating from wild lands, forest firefighting, where you don't need to do it. Let, the, let it burn and instead retrench back to places where you do want to protect uh, lives and property. But yes, fire is a natural part of the landscape. I think what's going to be hard, and this gets back to the shifting baseline, is with rising temperatures and in some places diminished or changed rainfall patterns, the ecosystem may not come back to the way we remember it. Um, you might see ponderosa, say, groves turn into a pinion juniper mix or a pinion juniper mix changing over to chaparral. That's going to be hard for people to wrap their minds around. You know, how, and this is, I think, again, the challenge of kind of wilderness in the, in the human age is how do we continue to have an intimate emotional relationship with landscapes, even as those landscapes change before our eyes. As the ocean gets closer to the San Francisco Zoo, <laughs> how does our, 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 our memory of Ocean Beach is going to change? Um, or I should say maybe our memory is going to stay the same, but the actual landscape is going to change. So I think, it's a, again, it's a big challenge um, for the conservation community. How do we sustain our love, say, for Sequoia National Park if the sequoias start to move northward or up in, you know, altitude elevation on the range. Um, or Joshua Tree, what, what, you know, what are we going to do with there's no Joshua Trees in Joshua Tree National Park or no glaciers in Glacier National Park? It's going to make these things a lot tougher. Rebranding opportunity. Um, the, uh, I want to ask each of you, we're going to go to audience questions soon, your favorite place in nature. Tanya Peterson, do you have one? It is the ocean. There's a peacefulness and a calm that comes with it. From whence we came, John yes. Kennedy said. Uh, Bernie Krauss? I love Alaska. I go there any time I can. Uh, 600,000 people and change, and uh, a place almost a third of the United States. Any particular part of Alaska, southeast or up uh, in the Kenai? I love Maybe. it all. Jason Mark? Um, I would say for that kind of sense of being in the deep, remote wilderness, the Gila wilderness of the southwest is pretty hard to beat. But for an experience in what I'd call the nearby nature, I love Point Reyes National Seashore. And we're so lucky to have a place yeah. like that um, right in our own backyard that you can get to in an hour you know, from right here in the city. So it's, it's an incredible resource that we have. And for those who uh, love Point Reyes, as I do, there's a wonderful film called Rebels with a Cause. It's the creation story of Point Reyes National Seashore. It's really, it's a zoning law, the tension with the, uh, the agricultural interests, ranchers and the enviros, and uh, it's a fascinating story. I want to talk uh, with you, before we go to audience <coughs> questions, about how you talk to climate skeptics. You're all very knowledgeable about climate change. Uh, Bernie Krauss... You encounter someone that doesn't value nature as much as you do. It's like, yeah, what about this sound of this frog? I don't care. How do you talk to someone about climate change who's not clear that it's happening or that it's a big concern to them? What I typically do is I'll just invite them to listen to these sounds and, and ask them 
I mean, and I have them from all over the world, both marine and terrestrial, and I'll just ask them, is this important to you? And does this, this is an expression of life, of living organisms. Uh, how important is this to you in your life? And do you consider uh, making that important? And then if they, if they really want to get down into facts, uh, my PhD is in bioacoustics. I can certainly quote facts and sources for them. Tanya Peterson, do you have a case well, to talk to skeptics? I just invite them to the zoo and say, hey, look how much warmer it is uh, at the San Francisco Zoo than it used to be. Uh, no, in truth, so, uh, I often point to the species if impacted. Uh, for example, turtles, their uh, sex is dependent upon the climate and temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I believe it's if it's warmer, there are more female turtles born. And e- examples like that showing the, the, uh, the facts and what the impact is, we are seeing and we're participating now in studies to try to neutralize that, you know, and actually breed the male turtles at the zoos to counter affect the situation. So I think with examples like that and cite the evidence. Jason Marks, some people think that facts don't persuade people, that facts don't do it. Facts don't convert people. Facts can be contentious. They can be argued. Uh, a lot of people are not a scientist, uh, get lost quickly. Are facts, how do you talk to a skeptic? It's really funny you say that, Greg, because I was, I was sitting over here kind of thinking about that. And yeah, I think, you know, issues around confirmation bias and how people sort of, kind of cherry pick their own evidence is really problematic. And, you know, my first instinct is to say, well, if you went to 100 doctors and 98 of them said you've got, you know, cancer, you would, you would go get treatment. You wouldn't listen to the 2% who said maybe you've got cancer. But again, I don't know that that's the most persuasive, the most persuasive argument. And I actually think that um, in some ways the, the environmental movement um, hasn't done a, done a good job. It's, it's, it's over-relied a little bit too much on science um, and, you know, facts are going to make the case. And I think actually moral arguments at the end of the day are going to make um, more people want to ch- either change their minds and or take action. And really coming back to just, you know, real punch in the gut sort of stuff of like, what's the world you want for your kids? I think those moral arguments are more likely to, to change hearts and minds and kind of laying out the, the, the bar graph or the pie chart of this is what, you know, uh, you know these many AAAS scientists say. We're talking about uh, nature and climate change at Climate One. Jason Mark is editor of the Earth Island Journal. Also today with us is the soundscape artist Bernie Krauss and Tanya Peterson, head of the San Francisco Zoo. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to audience questions. Uh, welcome to Climate One. Hi, Carter Brooks, uh, artist and philosopher of climate art. Um, so my question is about uh, the value of witnessing nature as it's degrading. And, and nature is used so much in, by environmental movements as, as just a, as, a, as a motivator for action rather than witnessing and accepting some of the, this degradation that's happening now over time. So like, how important do you think or what might any of the panelists say about this dynamic and the importance of carving out enough space for this for witnessing. We'd like to tackle that. Jason I mean, Mark? I think that you know, I've got the the last chapter of my book. I, I shadow some young men. They were all men, ages seventeen to twenty one, on a mountaineering uh, course of the Rockies. And there was this this one really smart, thoughtful kid named Pat from Bethesda, Maryland. And we're sitting there. I'm doing an interview with him with my audio recorder, and he says, "I did not expect to see all these dead husks." because there we are in the southern Rockies where the pine beetle, um, bark beetle devastation is really just, you know, torn apart coniferous forests. And so he's thinking, oh, I'm going from Bethesda, Maryland. I'm going to go out to the west and the Rockies, and it's going to be 
this wonderful alpine scenery, and it is unmistakable in the mountains above Vail, Colorado. You can see the whole hillside streaked with the, the conifer die-offs. Um, and at the same time, he was awed by the scenery, the alpine scenery, the Rockies. So it's kind of both, right? I mean, at the one hand, he's having this profound emotional experience through the sheer physical beauty of the place, but then, yes, the unmistakable, I guess what you call disease in the forest at this point, um, was shocking him. So, yes, I do think we need to do some of that witnessing, and it's, it's, it's going to be hard, and, it, and I think it's hopefully will be cathartic and that people will take from it a new sense of urgency. Jason Mark, explain the pine bark beetles happening because yes, of warming so. temperatures, and, and what impact does that have on the bears? It's the habitat. Oh, well, yes, I think in the northern Rockies, what you're seeing is you've got bears who rely on part of the year on on pine uh, nuts for part of their diet. They're not getting that in their diet. And but the the larger consequences are probably for birds. Maybe some birds are benefiting from the snags, but others aren't. But yes, I mean, it's a whole ripple effect. There's a trophic cascade happening at some level when you see those um, trees dying back. Uh, well, we'll give you a chance for any more questions. I want to talk to you about, ask you, what gives you hope? We've been talking about things that are going not so well. Uh, Bernie Krauss, is there a positive story where you've seen a rebound of an ecosystem? Give us something to hold on to here before we slip into the darkness. Well, <laughs> it's, I have seen rebounds of systems, uh, certainly in Costa Rica, uh, which is subtropical, um, and I've seen the regeneration of some of the forests there. But then the landscape is very different. The soil is very different uh, than it is in the Amazon or uh, rainforests in Africa or Indonesia. Uh, But one of the things that gives me hope is uh, I go out and I give these talks in schools all the time. uh, And typically, when I'm talking to third and fourth graders, uh, they're always coming up and asking me because I do something which is really fun um, as well as helpful. Uh, but they always come up and ask me, how can I do what you do? Uh, and then you get to this fifth and sixth and seventh graders, and there's always some guy, usually a guy in the background, who's going to raise his hand and he's going to say, um, uh, how much money do you make? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it gets to that kind of thing. You see the, the pyramid of information and, and acculturation uh, as, it, as it grows. But my hope is the young kids, the ones who are asking how can I do what you do? And uh, if there's any way that I can engage them, and I do that all the time, uh, my phone and email is always open. Jason Mark, Hope? Yeah, you know, there's this stereotype uh, of, around, you know, folks who really care, or sort of wilderness aficionados, or people who engage in backcountry recreation, that it's a usually kind of endeavor for white folks and or an affluent white folks. And so I'm really, you know, um, been given a lot of hope when I look at the, I went to the Arctic with a woman named Rue Mapp, who's got a group called Outdoor Afro, committed to um, getting more African-American communities engaged in outdoor recreation. There's also a group called now Latino Outdoors doing the same work. And so when I think about the work, and Latino Outdoors was hugely, you know, worked closely with the Sierra Club and other big conservation groups to get the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument right outside Los Angeles, designated by President Obama. So when I look at the work that Rue Map at Outdoor Afro is doing, or the work from Latino Outdoors are doing, to try to ensure that the 21st century conservation movement reflects the ethnic diversity of this country, that gives me a lot of hope. 
Because if the parks are just upper middle class white people, that's not going to have a base or a constituency. Exactly. Uh, Tanya Peterson, hopeful? Yeah, uh, every time we save a species uh, by collective effort or otherwise, I have hope. Uh, you know, the San Francisco Zoo and other zoos participated in an effort to get the remove the bald eagle from the endangered species list. Uh, you know, I say to our team, we're really here to try to put ourselves out of a job uh, and get some of these animals off the list. Um, most recently, some of the pond turtles and uh, yellow-legged frogs and so mm. forth. So that gives me hope when you see a collective a- effort nationwide to save a species. And also marine protected areas. Other people I've talked to have really seen rebounds in fisheries and in areas that are sort of these national parks in the seas. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. My name is Rahul. I come from a business background. So in my assessment, a lot of the damage for the nature and uh, climate uh, conservation has happened because of, uh, you know, efforts not put forward by corporations, private enterprise, and uh, profit motive individuals. So are there some concerted effort within the community to really incentivize these uh, private enterprises to be included in this movement so that there is something genuinely in in it for them? or should it be relegated to the CSR reports of the corporations? Jason Mark, companies are valuing nature for the economic benefits that it delivers to, to humans and businesses. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier briefly. It's this idea of ecosystem services, trying to figure out can we put a, a real price tag on all of the things that nature does anyway um, that actually serves us very well. I mean, you have the city of Los Angeles is spending, and I want to make sure I get the numbers roughly right, but it spends something like a billion dollars a year getting water into the city and spends a billion dollars a year getting water out of the city through, through its rainwater management. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We've sort of, because we've removed the natural systems from their natural functions from the system, right? And so thinking about ecosystem services, how does nature already provide things like stormwater removal? Um, and that's a really important effort. And you know, uh, I think you look at the work that, that Mark Tursek has done at the Nature Conservancy to try to work to, with big corporations to do that. I do think it's got its limitations. I think at the end of the day, corporations, if push comes to shove and it's make money or, or tear out the forest, they're going to make money. But I do think the ecosystem services work um, has got a lot of real benefit of, you know, around the edges and changing, I think, cultures within large corporations. And one classic example is factories, companies used to be worried about what happens inside their fence, and they're now starting to think about that, where that water comes from, and protecting a watershed upstream, because that helps them get their water supply. So kind of going beyond their, their traditional boundaries to think about uh, nature that helps them. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thanks for a really good program. I'm curious, how much of the information that you put forth here tonight gets to state and national legislators? Bernie Krause, you mentioned snowmobiles and, and legislators. How about other, other legislators who've uh, heard your soundscape of human impacts and climate? Well, there are many who have, and uh, it really depends on their level of curiosity, uh, how much they want to really know uh, about the living world and, um, and, and, and how much they want to learn. And if they're willing to take the risk of, of um, uh, challenging their own intractable views of things, I think that they're going to come to some conclusions that are really helpful and, uh, and moral and ethical and, um, and 
you know, are going to preserve a lot of this stuff that we're talking about today. I want to wrap up uh, by asking you uh, what you do in your own life to minimize your own carbon footprint. And first I'll ask Tanya what you do and at the zoo to minimize your carbon <clears throat> impact. Well, uh, you know, we try to take those baby steps as much as we can in a number of areas, but we're trying to eradicate the plastic bottle at the San Francisco Zoo. Uh, so we have the water filling stations. Uh, we now serve the water in the boxed water or pitchers. Uh, again, one small effort to eradicate. Uh, we have the electrical charging stations at the zoo. We have compost. Um, we're actually uh, one of the experiments with gray water. Uh, we're working with the PUC now. Uh, you know, if you're comfortable hosing down animals, you may be comfortable taking a shower in the gray water as well. So wherever the efforts we can to participate in uh, preserving our resources, we certainly do. Bernie Krauss, and also what can an average person, what are you doing, what can an average person do to really make an impact uh, in a meaningful way? Well, just in our personal life, uh, my wife and I live in a rammed earth house. It's not made of um, forest products. We're solar uh, pretty much solar operated as far as uh, uh, our power is concerned. And uh, the house it came with a pool, and uh, we've eliminated chlorine in the pool by dropping salt in it and running electric charge across the salt, and it separates the chloride from the sodium, and you have natural chlorine, so it doesn't uh, spend a lot of time with Wait, chemical you electrify chlorine. your pool? Is that what I just heard? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's Interesting experience. <laughs> I guess so. You probably swim pretty fast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we get a lot of exercise. <laughs> okay. Jason Mark? Well, you asked earlier if I was a vegetarian. I'm not, but I, um, I have, uh, for the past couple of years now, removed beef from my diet just because it, the greenhouse gas intensity of beef compared to pork or chicken is, is, is a lot greater. So I removed beef from my diet. Um, you know, uh, the car mostly sits on the street and gathers dust most days of the week and take BART and bike. Uh, in terms of what people can do, I really do think it is about, you know, finding that little patch of nature, uh, you know, as much as we need the big remote wilderness um, for many different reasons, finding that little patch of the nearby nature close to home, getting out to the seashore or the woods, and again, remembering why we want to do this work in the first place. It is to, to as I said earlier, uh, for a planet worth saving. Well, perfect place to end it there. Our thanks to Jason Mark from Earth Island Journal, Bernie Krause, the soundscape artist, and Tanya Peterson from the San Francisco Zoo. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here, the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and online and on, on air. Thank you all for coming and listening. Thank you. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. <laughs> <laughs>